If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite your attention, please, to the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. And today's message is based on this 11th chapter of John's Gospel and the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave, and is another message in our series of following the theme of the I Am sayings of Christ. There are at least seven sayings of our Lord recorded by John in his gospel in which our Lord used the words, I am. As you know, that title, I am, comes from the third chapter of the book of Exodus when Moses stood before the burning bush and uh, the Lord said to him, take off your shoes for the ground on which you're standing is holy. And then God proceeded to tell Moses that he had been chosen to lead the people of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt into the promised land. One of the questions that Moses had regarding that responsibility was when I get down there, one of the first things they're going to ask me is who sent you? By what authority do you have to tell us what to do? What am I to say? And then that's when the Lord said to him, I am who I am. I am. And of course, we know that that expression, I am, speaks of the eternal existence of God, that He is all sufficient, all powerful, all knowing, has always been, never has ceased to exist. God has had no beginning and no end. He just is. I am. Not I have been, not I will be, but I am. And when the Lord said, as recorded in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, that before Abraham was born, I am, when He used that term, I am, they all uh, almost swallowed their tongue, so to speak, because uh, that was, in essence, his, uh, his claim to deity. He was taking God's name, and rightly so, because he is God. He was God in the flesh. And just like God the Father, he has always been, is, and always shall be. So he is the great I Am. And we've been looking at these various topics, and today we see him saying to Mary and to Martha, recorded in John's Gospel for all the world to hear, that Jesus Christ is the great I am of the resurrection and the life. So with that in mind, take your Bibles, please, in John chapter 11. And uh, I'll begin reading with verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. 
The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Now let me pause there in verse 14 says, so Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, when Jesus used the term sleep, he was not making reference to the soul, but only to the body. At death, it's not the soul that sleeps. When you die, you will still be alive. You will just not be in your body. And Jesus and Paul and other verses of scripture in the Bible use the metaphor sleep in reference to death. I like the words of Longfellow who said, life is real and life is earnest and the grave is not the goal. Dust thou art and to dust returneth was not written of the soul. So as the scripture says, at death, the body returns to the ground from which it came, but the spirit returns to the father or to heaven where it came from and who gave it. So the word sleep is a metaphor in reference to the death of a child of God. And so he's talking in reference here to Lazarus. Lazarus very plainly says, what he meant by sleep was that Lazarus is dead. He didn't just uh, pass out, uh, just like many people in those days and still do, uh, thought of the death of Jesus, that he just, in all of the excruciating pain that he was experiencing on the cross of Calvary, just couldn't take it anymore. And so he just passed out, but he didn't really die. But he did. The scripture is very plain and accurate in stating that Jesus died on the cross. And when he was buried, he was dead. But of course, we know that he uh, was still very much alive and the same thing is true here with Lazarus. Now, nothing, nothing hurts uh, like the death of a loved one. There's no pain like the death pain that you experience. It's deep and it's slow at healing. Notice three times here in this 11th chapter of John that reference is made to his love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. John chapter 11 and verse three says, so the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord behold, he whom you love is sick. Then down in verse five, chapter 11 and verse five, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then down in verse 36, it says, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved them and loved Lazarus? So he had love for them, just as Jesus has love for you today. And when death happens, it stabs love in the heart. And our Lord was empathizing and sympathizing with the pain that Mary and Martha were experiencing in the passing of uh, their brother. And his heart went out to them. Now, skipping on down in chapter 11, I want you to look at verse 33. In verse 33, it says, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and was troubled. It's repeated in verse 38. So Jesus again being deeply moved within came to the tomb and now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. So in verse 33 and verse 38, it says that Jesus was deeply moved and was troubled. Now it's interesting that the term that's translated deeply moved literally means to snort like a horse. 
And you might say, well, boy, that's out of context as far as a reference to Jesus snorting like a horse. It's also translated that he sternly warned and scolded. Now that's odd, opposed, opposite of everything that we've, we've read about the love of our Lord and, and the grief that he has felt for Mary and Martha. Who is Jesus scolding? Why is he snorting like a horse? Why, what is he sternly warning them about? Well, I believe there's two possible understandings of I think, first of all, that, that he was scolding over the painful reality of sin and death. I, I think he was making reference to the devil because the devil has come to, uh, to kill, steal, and destroy. And our Lord came to overcome all of that. And now he, he just seems to just scold the devil. Look at what you have done, devil. You've killed this man, but I'm going to raise him up. On the other hand, I think that he was scolding those who were joining Mary and Martha in their weeping and in their mourning. They were acting like pagans. Because if there's anyone who has hope of life after the death of an individual or of their own death, it ought to be Christians. Because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus overcame sin and death in the grave. And the same words that he spoke to Mary and to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, though he is dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And so we ought to take hope, confidence, and assurance. Christians ought not to be afraid to die. Because if what we believe the scripture teaches about the future, about heaven and life and eternity, being with the Lord and all that God is preparing for those eyes not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that the Lord has prepared for him. And if all of that is true, and I believe that it is, then the greatest thing that could ever happen to a Christian would be for him or her to die. And if that isn't true, folks, then we might as well close our doors, turn out our Bibles, close the doors, turn out the lights and go home. But it is true. There is life beyond the grave. And so when Jesus went to them, he was upset because they were carrying on like pagans. Jesus was the resurrection of the life he still is. So he wept in verse 35. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. So Jesus said, go back to verse 25, to the heart of the message today. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. There are four basic ideas that I want to develop this morning on that statement of our Lord. And of course, the first one is the statement that he made. The statement that Christ claimed, I am the resurrection and the life. I, it's not I was or shall be, but, but I am. Those two words, I am, makes uh, extra meaning for us regarding death and eternity. Two things that Jesus claimed, the resurrection and the life. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the heart of the Christian faith and the heart of our Christian message. The resurrection and the cross are the main themes found in all of the New Testament books from Matthew right on through the book of Revelation. Several years ago in one of his sermons printed in Decision Magazine, Billy Graham said this, no other word in all our vocabulary is more expressive of the message of Jesus Christ than the word resurrection. In his resurrection, evil has been defeated, 
Love has conquered hate. Death has lost its sting. And Satan has been defeated. God has accepted the atoning work of his son on the cross. And all of creation is bursting forth in a new song. So Jesus crushed the head of the serpent when he died on the cross and won the victory for us over sin and death, was buried and raised on the third day, thus assuring us of our own resurrection. Now, other people were raised before Jesus was. Jesus was not the first one to rise from the dead. The account that we're looking at today in John chapter 11, again, I say to you, in the words of Jesus, plainly stating that Lazarus was dead. He was dead. In fact, we'll get later to see where it says in the scriptures that when, when Jesus went out to the cemetery where they had laid him to rest, he said to the disciples, move the stone away from the mouth of the stone. They said, Lord, he's been dead for four days. He's already stinking. You see, they didn't embalm people in those days like we do today. But even today, if a person chooses not to be embalmed when they die, they have to be buried pretty soon, sometimes the very same day, certainly within 24 hours or maybe 48 hours at the latest, because the body begins to deteriorate. There's no longer air running through the veins in your body. You begin to decay. You're, you begin to, to stink. Uh, I don't mean to be crude and rude about all of this, but that, that's, that's what happens. When you, when you die, your body begins to deteriorate. And it very plainly says here that he had already been dead four days. Why, surely his body had, had already increased in his deterioration. So he wasn't just asleep, he was dead, dead. And his body stinks. Nonetheless, Jesus said, roll the stone away because I am the resurrection. In the seventh chapter of the gospel of Luke, we read where the widow of Nain had a son who had died. They had laid his body in a coffin and they were in a procession to the, to the cemetery to lay his body at rest. Jesus stopped the funeral procession and reached up and touched the young man's body and raised him from the dead. And then you have in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the raising of Jairus' daughter. Jairus, you remember, a Roman official went to Jesus and said, my, my daughter is sick, I want you to come and heal her. As he was on his way, he was interrupted by a woman who was suffering from an issue of blood and Jesus healed her. And after he had healed her, they were still standing there and a messenger came and said to Jairus, no longer, you don't have to bother the, the master any longer, your daughter has died. But Jesus went to the home and brought her back to life. And then at the death of Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross in the 27th chapter of Matthew, it says that people who were dead came out of their tombs and were alive and lived for several more years. So Jesus was not the first one to be raised from the dead. However, and this is important, Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead, never to die again. You see, Lazarus, though raised from the dead, died again. The widow's son died again. 
Jairus' daughter died again. Those people who came out of the tomb on the day that our Lord died, died again. Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, was the first fruits of them who will never die again. What does that mean? Well, first fruits is a harvest term. It refers to the first bushel of corn or wheat or whatever it may be that is harvested. That first bushel was dedicated to the Lord, given to the Lord. It was not only a recognition that this, this, is, this is from the Lord, but it was a, a anticipation of and the assurance of, well, this is the first bushel. There's going to be a second one. And there's going to be a third one and a fourth one and a hundredth one and a thousandth one and a millionth one. This is just the first one of many more that are to come. Jesus Christ is the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again, and yet there will be many more. And who will that be? That will be you and me. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we will be resurrected as well. And we will have a glorified, sanctified body just like our Lord's, a supernatural body. And all of that will take place when the Lord returns and our bodies will be brought back from the dead. When you die, you immediately leave your body. You go into the presence of the Lord. Your body is buried. When Jesus comes back, you and everyone else who's in heaven will come with him. Your body will be resurrected. Mortal will put on immortality. Corruption will be putting on incorruption and then shall be brought to pass the saying, O death, where is your sting, O grave? Where is the victory you hope to win? So Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead, never to die again. And he's standing there with Mary and Martha and he's saying, I am the resurrection. The word resurrection literally means not just to stand up, but to stand up again. Lazarus' body had fallen in death. It had been buried. It had been dead for four days, but Jesus raised it up again. Likewise, that will happen to you. And so he is the resurrection. Now, in the 24th verse, look at the 24th verse. When Jesus said, your brother will rise again, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So there was this belief, even by Mary and Martha, about the future resurrection. The, the resurrection was taught in the Old Testament one of my favorite passages of scripture comes out of the book of Job. In the 19th chapter of the book of Job, beginning with verse 23, listen to what Job, now do you remember the story of Job, how he was suffering uh, and uh, had lost everything? And uh, his wife even said to him, why, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job's response was, of course, well, shall we only receive good things from the Lord and not bad things? So in all of these things, it says Job did not sin, and yet Job wrestled. He was suffering. But listen to what he says. All that my words were written, all that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eye will see and not another, although my heart faints within me. Now that is resurrection belief on the part of Job. 
His body was covered with boils and sores. He was in so much excruciating pain that he took broken pieces of potter and literally scratched the itching places on his body. Uh, and he could, he could have cursed God and died. But he had this conviction in his heart. And Mary and Martha also said, I know that you're, there will be a resurrection in the last day. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection now. You don't have to wait till the last day. And so he's the resurrection. Notice also, not only does he say that he is the resurrection, he says, I am the life. I am the life. Now, we've already looked at this word life, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so to the Christian, life is not a creed. It's not a code. It's not being a member of a church. Life is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is life. He not only gives life, he not only teaches about life, he not only promises life, he is life. He is the resurrection and the life. Paul said that Christ is our life in Colossians 3, 4. In Philippians 1, he said that for me to live is Christ. To die is to gain. And so he gives life as well as the resurrection. So the statement that Christ claimed, I am the resurrection, I am the life. But notice the second thing, not only the statement that Christ claimed, but the promise that Christ made. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So this is a promise. Now he doesn't preface this statement by, let me give you a promise. He who believes in me will never die. But by the very statement of it, it is a promise. And you know, when the Lord makes a promise, he will keep his word. The Bible clearly teaches us that God cannot lie. He is not a liar. And what he is and what he says is the truth. That he is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you can take Jesus at his word. Then when he says he will do something, when he makes a promise, it's guaranteed that he will follow through with that promise. God's not going to dangle a promise over you and not keep it. He is trustworthy to keep his promises, and we can be grateful to the Lord that he is. He made this promise that uh, we will live forever. In the book of Numbers, chapter 23 and verse 19, the Bible says, has he spoken and will he not make it good? God's not just going to say something flippantly and, and then pass on. God doesn't speak idle words. He speaks the truth, and when he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56, not one word has failed of all of his good promises which he has promised. Now you're in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. Keep your place here and turn to the 5th chapter. Just turn back a few chapters to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, verses 24 and 29. I don't know if you've ever thought of this before or read of this before, but did you know that everybody, both sinner and a saved individual, will be resurrected? Hitler's going to be resurrected. Mussolini's going to be resurrected. Muhammad's going to be resurrected. Every single person born in this world will be resurrected. But listen to this. John chapter 5, verse 24 and 29. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. So unless I've misunderstood or misinterpreted this scripture, what Jesus is saying, everybody will be resurrected. And if you are a born again child of God, you're going to be resurrected to life. And you're going to live with Jesus in heaven and enjoy all the things that the Lord has prepared for you for all eternity. If you are not a believer in Christ, if you have never repented of your sins and embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you die, then the day of resurrection, you will come forth. You will have a body also, and, but you will not go to heaven. You will go to a place the Bible very clearly teaches is hell. And you will be eternally separated from God the Father. You will be in a place of eternal darkness, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal torment, forever separated from the Father. So the lost person will be resurrected to death and to judgment. The saved person will be resurrected to life and eternal uh, existence with the heavenly Father. This is taught by a story. I like to call it a story rather than a parable because a parable usually just doesn't make reference to a real person. But this one, Jesus actually gives a name to a person. In Luke chapter 16, verses 19, 31, he talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus. He said there was this rich man who fared sumptuously every day. There was a beggar who sat at his doorstep and, and his name was Lazarus. And in due time, he says, uh, Lazarus died and the angels came and took him to the bosom of Abraham, which was the Jewish way of saying that he went to heaven. But the rich man died and where did he go? He went to hell. And, and in hell, we're told, you read it in the 16th chapter of the gospel of Luke, that he was very much alive, that he was conscious. He knew where he was. He had feelings because he was tormented in the flames. And he even said to Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and come and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in these flames. So here you have an example of what Jesus is saying. If you're saved and know the Lord and love Jesus, you're going to heaven. If you don't, you're going to hell, a place of torment. Then you'll notice in Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, when the thief who died with Jesus and turned his voice over to Jesus and looked at Jesus and said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not sometime in the future, but immediately when you die, you're going with me to be in paradise with me. When that great Christian and scientist, Sir Michael Faraday, lay dying on his bed, there were some journalists who were gathered around his bed and began to question him. And one of them said, uh, uh, Sir Faraday, uh, tell me about your speculations of death. And he responded, speculations? I know nothing about speculations. I am resting on certainties. 
I know that my Redeemer liveth, and because he lives, I shall live also. So we have the confidence and the assurance. Jesus made a promise. If you believe in me, if you trust me, you will live forever. A promise. Notice a third thing, and that is the question that Christ asked Mary and Martha. It's recorded in verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Oh, a question that he put to Mary and to Martha. Do you really believe this? To believe is more than simply intellectual acknowledgement. You know, I've told you before, if we could allow the, if the, somehow the devil could appear here on this platform in person and we could interview him about who Jesus is and we would say to Satan, Satan, who is Jesus? Immediately say he's the son of God. Does that mean that he's a Christian? No. You can ask a lot of people about Jesus. Yeah, I, I believe that he existed. I believe that he lived. Uh, but they're not committed to him. So there's got to be something more to belief than just acknowledging it in your mind. The word belief carries with it the idea of commitment. Commitment. When you believe something, you're committed to it. You accept it as the truth. Just as if I could say, well, I believe one of these choir chairs could hold me up and I can talk about it all day long holding me up, but I've got to walk over and sit down in it. And when I commit myself to the, my weight to the, to the chair, I, yeah, I believe that it will hold me up. I've committed myself to it. To say that you believe in Jesus means you've got to commit yourself to the Lord. Just as he said to Mary and to Martha, I'm the resurrection of the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Are you committed to this? There's a difference in intellectual belief and an actual commitment and a surrender of yourself to the living Lord. Now notice in verses 21 and in 32 that Mary and Martha both made the same statement to Jesus. Martha said in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary says the same thing in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But what Jesus is trying to say to them is death doesn't finish life. It's not over. In fact, earlier in the chapter, we read that Jesus said, I'm glad he's dead. Because because he's dead, now you'll be able to see the glory of the Father. And we'll glorify God the Father. That's why you were saved. That's why you are a child of God. Not just so that you can live forever, but that through your life and even in your death you might bring glory to the Father. He gets out there at the tomb and he says to those around him, did I not say to you, if you would only believe, you would see the glory of the Father? Oh my goodness. You can only imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus returns in all of his majesty and in all of his glory and raise everybody from the dead. It would be a glorifying day for us, as well as for him, death does not end life or your existence. And then, of course, you have the answer, the fourth and final thing. The answer that Christ desired in verse 27, it says, She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now, in, in her answer or in her confession, she says three things about Jesus. 
First of all, she says and that she believed that Jesus Christ, uh, I have believed that you are the Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one. The Jews were looking for the anointed one, the one that the Messiah. And, uh, and she says by confessing him as Christ, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. The second thing that she says that she believed was that he is the son of God. I believe that you're the son of God. And the third thing is that he was the one who was to come into the world, come into the world in order that we might be saved. So her answer is, yes, Lord. Yes, I believe. When Paul was writing the book of Romans in the 10th chapter in verses 9 and 10, he talks about belief. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. When uh, Jesus appeared to his disciples and appeared to Thomas, you remember Thomas doubted, he says, I'm not gonna believe. You, you, I, I'm not gonna believe unless I can see it with my own eyes. And so Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room a second time and Thomas was there. First time he wasn't. Thomas was there. And Jesus looked at him, he said, Thomas, take your fingers and Feel the scars in the palm of my hand. Take your hand, thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas bowed at his feet and said, Oh, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, you have seen and you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen with the physical eye and yet who believe. That's how you get saved, by believing in Jesus by turning to him and asking him, oh dear Jesus, forgive me of my sins. You repent of your sins and you ask him to come into your heart and you say as did Mary and Martha, yes Lord, we believe that you are the Christ. You are the son of God who's come into the world to redeem us from our sins. In the eighth chapter of the gospel of the book of Acts, Philip is led by the Holy Spirit out into um, a desert, there's a caravan there. And in the caravan, there's a man, we don't know his name, he's just referred to as the Ethiopian eunuch. It says in the scriptures that he was the treasurer of the Queen Candace. So he was a man of influence, a man of rank and importance. He had been converted to the Jewish faith and he had been to Jerusalem to worship, to pay his tithe and so forth. And he was on his way back home in this caravan. And um, the Holy Spirit led Philip to go to the caravan and to witness to this Ethiopian eunuch. And as he walked alongside the chariot, or if the chariot had stopped and was standing still there, he heard this Ethiopian eunuch reading from the prophecy of Isaiah. And uh, Philip asked him a question, do you understand what, what you're reading? And he said, well, and I'm paraphrasing you here in my own words, he said, not really, I, I don't have anybody to interpret it and explain it to me. So at the eunuch's invitation, Philip gets up in the chariot and he, the scripture says in Acts chapter eight that he began at the same scripture that he was reading from and began, the King James says, preach unto him Jesus. To preach means to talk or tell about or to explain 
And, and the man said, Who, who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about somebody else? And Philip began to preach to him Jesus and explain to him, no, the person Isaiah was writing about was the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they were going along the way, and he was explaining to him about Jesus, they came to a, a pond of a, a water, a lake, a stream, that was a pool of water. The eunuch said, look, here's some water. Can I get baptized? And Philip said, what? Sure, salvation comes by baptism. No, oh no. No, he said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And the eunuch said, I believe that he is the Christ. Now notice, remember what Paul said? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, what did the eunuch say? I believe in my heart and I confess it with my mouth. He did exactly what the apostle Paul said to do in order to be saved. And once he believed in his heart and confessed it with his mouth, Philip said, okay, now that you've made a profession of faith, now that you've believed in your heart and trusted Christ as Lord, I'll baptize you. And so they got down into the water and he baptized him by immersion. Didn't sprinkle him, didn't pour water over him. He dunked him. <laughs> you get wet all over. Why? Because by baptism, you are acting out and symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we baptize somebody, we lay them in the water and say, you're buried with Christ in baptism and you are raised to walk in a newness of life. It is a picture. How, if, if, you, if I were to drop dead and, and Linda and my family would have my funeral, they wouldn't take my body out to the cemetery and lay my body on top of the ground and take a shovel full of dirt and sprinkle it over, over me and say, well, he's buried. They dig a hole. It's called a grave. And they lay my body in the grave and they cover it up. You don't symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by sprinkling. You do it through immersion. It's acting out the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And every born-again child of God who believes in their hearts and confesses it with their mouth, follow the Lord in believer's baptism by immersion. So if you believe with all of your heart, he may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And Philip ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch. And he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him. But the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. <laughs> you get saved, makes you glad. You get happy on the inside. Well, we live in a world that denies the reality of death. People don't die. They just are deceased or perhaps have passed away or they've left us. They're not buried. They're laid to rest or are interred. But a change of vocabulary does not alter reality. People die. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. I don't want to discourage you in any way and just pour water on all your excitement, but you're going to die. All of you in the balcony and here in the choir, down in the Lord Auditorium with the people are there. 
Unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes and raptures us out of this world, every single one of us will die. We'll walk the valley of the shadow of death. One out of every one person dies. The statistics have not changed. Every, every generation of people die. You're going to die. But like I said before, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, you don't have to be afraid of it. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Oh, how he loves you. He loved you so much that he was willing to die on the cross to save you from your sins. The person who trusts Jesus Christ has eternal life, not will have, but has. You don't wait until you die to get eternal life. When you trust Jesus as your savior, you immediately receive eternal life. And death is just simply that departure from this body which you go right into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's resurrection. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the victory that's ours through the Lord Jesus Christ, your son and our savior who died to save us from our sins. We thank you for these who are here today. Most, if not all of us, have already experienced the new birth and know what it is to repent of sin and, and to trust you as Lord and Savior. We thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for the promise. We believe you, Lord. We believe you so much that we've committed ourselves to you. We're resting all of our hope, our confidence on you as the Son of God and the resurrection and the life. I pray, pray now that um, as we give this invitation, should there be one here who has never trusted Christ, Holy Spirit, bring conviction to their hearts, lead them to make public their decision to trust Christ and to follow him, that we might all rejoice along with the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. There may be others here today who need to make public a decision of either transferring their membership or becoming a part of our fellowship by statement or whatever decision may be on their hearts today, Holy Spirit, as you speak to them and lead them, may it all be to your honor and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Joel is going to lead us today in our hymn of invitation, and so would you please stand, and as we sing, you come. <laughs>